Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. are wrapping up tonight our series that we've been doing covering the final days of Jesus these last few weeks. And uh, so far we've looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we looked at his crucifixion. We looked at his resurrection. We looked at his ascension last week. And uh, tonight we come to this uh, really amazing event. It's the story, it's often called the story of Pentecost. Uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and it comes to us in the book of Acts, which in your Bible follows the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, which chronicle Jesus' life, and the book of Acts chronicles kind of the early church and everything that happens in the early church, and it's really the continuing acts of Jesus, Uh, Jesus' work among his people as he's now formed them to represent him in the world, and... um, Where our story picks up is uh, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's 10 days after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And that's where we we pick up. So uh, let me read it. It's a long passage, and uh, I've uh, cut out a few parts, not because they're not important, but just uh, for the sake of getting through it all. Uh, But... I'd encourage you to follow along up here. It's not going to be on two slides. So let me read it for us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All the Christians at that point. There were 120 of them. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them all telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skipping ahead a little bit. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Skipping ahead a little more. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Whew, that's a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, it's a really big text uh, that means a lot, and we need your guidance to get through it, and we need your spirit to apply it to our hearts. It's truth, and so we pray that you would do that and meet us where we are tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a bad week in the Dorado house, guys. It all started Monday night when my one-year-old son, Asher, started throwing up. And we thought, this is really bad. And Tuesday morning we were like, okay, phew, it's just Asher. None of, us are, none of the rest of us are sick. And I was on campus for a while Tuesday, and I actually was with Joanna right before this, and I walked to my car, and I, you know, I was like, man, my legs are feeling kind of weak. I had caught what Asher had. So now I've got the stomach bug Tuesday night. And we're thinking, okay, well, at least it's just me and Asher. You know, if Margot was going to get it, she would have gotten it by now, my three-year-old daughter. Last night, Margot gets it. She's got the stomach bug. And I don't know if you've ever seen a three-year-old cute little girl with the stomach bug, but it is so sad uh, to see. And it was awful watching her uh, and, you know, the helplessness of a three-year-old girl with the stomach bug, this, like, look of what's happening to me. And it got to the point where it was bedtime and Margo was still feeling super sick. And my wife Maggie and I were like, what do we do? What should we do? We can't, like, are we just going to check on her, like, every 20 minutes? And finally, I was like, I'm already sick. Like, I already caught the virus, so I'll just sleep in bed with her. You know, I'm immune to what she has, because I just had it, so I'll sleep with her, and I'll care for her. And so that was my night last night, all night long, comforting her, getting her the right amount of water, 
because she was wanting to drink a lot of water, and you can't do that if you have a stomach bug, so it'll come right back up. And, you know, all this caring for her in all these ways, and, you know, she's breathing all over me, but I don't care because I'm immune to what she has. And uh, just kind of being there for her last night. And, you know, why would I do that, right? Because I love my daughter immensely. Uh, more than you could ever know, I love my daughter and I know that being with her is a lot better than being down the hall in that condition. You know, I, I could be in my own room. I could call out to her. She could call out to me. We could communicate. That would kind of help. But the best thing would be for one of her parents to be with her while she suffered, comforting her and taking care of her. Thankfully, Margot is doing, like, okay today. You know, she's passed the worst of it by far. Uh, I want you to have that in mind as we think about what the Bible is all about. What is the Bible? And what you need to know, and what you, if you've been around RUF, then you've heard me say this a lot, that the Bible is primarily a story. Uh, it's a coherent story from start to finish, and it's a history, uh, but it's a history focusing not on like global history of everything, but specifically on what God is doing to fix our world. And you might ask, well, what's wrong with the world? And what's revealed to be wrong with the world in the Bible is that there is a virus in our world called sin and death. And the virus enters in right at the beginning of the Bible. Didn't always exist. God created a good world. There was a time when God dwelt with his people and everything was amazingly great. Uh, But we brought the virus into the world when we rejected our maker. Adam and Eve did that on our behalf. And when that happened, when the virus entered, everything went wrong. Nothing is now the way it's supposed to be. And that's why sickness exists. That's why three-year-old girls get stomach bugs. That's why death exists. That's why sadness exists. That's why your relationships are challenging and hard. That's why violence and racism exist. Uh, In the Bible, the biggest problem with the virus, though, is that it separates us from the one who made us. The virus makes it go so that we were together with the one who made us and now, and we became apart. And that's why life often feels like being a three-year-old with a stomach virus. You know, life is filled with pain. You know, I've talked to a lot of you about experiences of pain. I've talked to you a lot about feeling helpless in this world, experiences of suffering, experiences of confusion. Like, what is going on? Why are things this way? Now, the good news that's revealed in the Bible is that God created his people in love and that God has a fierce determination to be with his people. Uh, And in the Old Testament, there's all these promises. You know, as the Bible progresses along, God keeps on reminding his people, I'm going to be with you one day. I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, In verse 21 of our passage that we just looked at on the next slide here, there's this promise, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, which is a prophecy about Jesus, it calls him Emmanuel, God with us. There's going to come a day when God is with us. And that culminates with Jesus, right? It culminates in these final days of Jesus that we've been talking about, the one who overcomes the virus. And he's now immune to the virus. He comes from God, and he's not infected with the virus, but he's made to feel every effect of it in his life, and then in his death, in his suffering, in his alienation, as he dies for our sins. And in that 
work, he defeats it. He rises in triumph over it, and he ascends to heaven like we talked about last week. And that means that there's only one thing left at that moment to happen in the story of the Bible, and that is for God to come. It's for God to come be with his people forever. And what we find out here is that it's going to happen in two stages. And that's where our passage picks up in the first stage. Um, Pentecost is, uh, another word for it is the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of the Harvest. It was a Jewish feast, and it was 40 days, uh, or rather 50 days after the Passover. So God, like, loves feasts. You need to know that about God, which makes him great. God loves feasts. And uh, he required his people to feast at certain times of year. And there was one at Passover, and there was one uh, 50 days later. And that's why it's called Pentecost in Greek, because of the five. And uh, so it's this feast that everyone from all around the known world is coming again to Jerusalem to feast. And it's, we know that there's about 120 Christians at this point. We're talking 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And they're all gathered together. And there's this mighty rushing wind. And it says, divided tongues as of fire rested on them. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's this huge commotion, right? There's this massive crowd that gathers seemingly instantly. And they're all proclaiming the mighty works of God. And the amazing thing is that even though they're all from different parts of the world now, all speaking different language, they are miraculously able to all understand each other. And the people looking on say, those people are drunk. That's the only, they're drunk. That is the only explanation. And in response, Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest disciples, preaches this sermon to them, which is the bulk of this. And the gist of it is, of what he tells them is, this is what God always said he was going to do. This is what Jesus is all about. All of human history culminates in him. This is why he died and rose again. You need to turn to Jesus. And it says that thousands of people become Christians that day. Okay, cool story, right? So what? That's a big question, right? Like, what does this mean for us sitting in the room here today? And there's a lot we could say, and I'm not going to say it all. But uh, to understand, to begin to understand what's going on, the first thing you need to know is that fire is a big deal in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, God is often depicted as a big fire. We see it uh, first when Moses meets God in the burning bush. Remember that story? Uh, We see it when God rescues his people from Egypt and they meet him at Mount Sinai and it's just this fiery, scary, like crazy experience. We see it when uh, they build a dwelling place for God, the tabernacle, and then the temple, and it's filled with fire and smoke. So God is often, he often shows up in the form of like a big, scary fire. Now fast forward to this. Jesus has now accomplished his work of salvation, and what happens is now little fires appear over all the believers, over all the Christians. It's, it's a way of saying, because of Jesus' work, God goes from being this consuming, devouring fire to someone who is now present, who now resides within Christians. 
It's this moment when we move. This is like the moment where we move from Old Testament faith to New Testament faith. This is where it was all headed. And I just want to give you three implications of what this means for us today. What it means that we as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, carry the divine fire. And the first one is that having Jesus should connect you in deep fellowship with the Christians around you. You see how the first thing that happens in this passage when the Holy Spirit comes is that people from vastly different cultures and different languages are brought together instantly? Do you see how barriers disappear when people that have the divine fire within them come together? Why does that happen? Because we all have the same story. We've all been, we are all desperate people who have been rescued by Jesus. God himself come to earth to rescue us. Because, and because God lives within us, everything else is secondary now. Every other difference becomes secondary. Uh, if God lives within you and he lives within me, then we should all be able to connect even if we're totally different. Even if our personalities and our backgrounds are like totally different from each other. And this is why we focus on relationships a lot in RUF. Because we believe that God, this is what God is about, is drawing his people together, breaking down barriers between people. And this is also why Christians should oppose racism, frankly, and xenophobia and things like that, because it goes completely against what God is doing. God is about bringing people together. Um, So I want to ask you, if you're a Christian here, is God drawing you into the lives of the people around you? of other Christians around you? Are you connecting with them? Or are you resisting for some reason? Uh, And the good news of the gospel is because we have the same story, we can experience life-giving community and connection uh, today. And so I'd encourage you to step out and connect. That's the first implication. Second one, if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. Okay? Second big takeaway. If you have Jesus, you have all that you need. You have the divine fire of God within you. Whether it feels like it or whether it doesn't. I want you to think again about my daughter Margot um, and her experience last night. Christians today are like her last night when I got in bed with her. We're not all the way better Right? Still not feeling great, but there will come a day when Jesus returns and we're completely healed. Right? So we look forward to that day, but for now, we are with the one who can help us and comfort us while we wait. You know, sometimes, you know, saying all I need is Jesus is an easy thing to say, but in practice, it's really hard, right? Like, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I need Jesus, but I also need a good GPA. Or like, yeah, I need Jesus, but I also like, could use a significant other. Or I need Jesus, but I could use a career plan. Or I need Jesus, but I also feel like I need sex. Or I feel like I need popularity. Fill in the blank for you. And what I want you to see is that the problem with that kind of thinking is that Jesus is the Lord of all of that stuff. He's the one who made all that stuff. He rules over all that stuff. He's in control of it, and he understands it better than you do. And he's the one who knows what you need, and if you needed it, he would have given it to you. If you're living for any of that other stuff, 
then you can't be living for him. And my daughter Margot understood that principle last night. I mentioned the water thing before, right? Little, like doctors tell you when your kid uh, is vomiting, you don't want to give them water right away because they'll just throw it right back up. And so you have to really limit it. And you have to wait like half an hour to try to introduce fluids. And uh, so I spent the night with Margot, which had plenty of like, Daddy, I want water, I'm thirsty. And me giving her like, you know, waiting half an hour, giving her like tiny sips. And she wants so much more than that. She's looking to like chug the water because she's, she's like dehydrated and thirsty, but it's really, it's this really difficult situation. And I, I keep kind of like, I'm, I'm holding the water cup out of her reach. I'm giving her a little, pulling it back, putting it on the windowsill. And finally she says, daddy, go back to your bed. <laughs> why, why is she saying that? She wants the water. Like she wants to be the one deciding how much water she gets. Margot knew that it was either daddy goes away and I get what I want or daddy stays and he limits me. And what she didn't have a full understanding of in that moment and what we don't have a full understanding of is what is good for me in this moment? We don't have a way to understand that. And what you need to see is in the Bible, God never promises what you perceive to be a good and comfortable life. If you live with demands before God that are more than his presence, you will necessarily miss out on the closeness and communion with God that you were made for. And when you're not connected to God, disaster ensues. Just like, you know, think of the disaster that would have ensued if Margot just started, like, chugging a huge glass of water. That would have been awful. Okay, so I want to ask you another question. What are you really living for? How is it spoiling your relationship with God? How is it preventing you from having connection with God? How is it taking away the joy of just being with him? That's the second implication. Okay, last one. Third implication. If the divine fire resides within you, you will become someone who proclaims the mighty works of God. Like it says in this passage. If you're someone who God is now with, you will proclaim Jesus, in other words. Uh, Did you notice in this passage uh, that when people are brought together and they understand each other's languages, that they're not just babbling about whatever? It says specifically what they're talking about. They're telling the mighty works of God. What are the mighty works of God? Everything that Jesus just did. How he saved us. How he was, God came to earth and was torn apart on the cross so that we could be covered, uh, so he could defeat sin and death by rising from the grave. How he's in heaven right now, how he's sending his spirit in this moment. These are the mighty works of God. They're amazing. And the mighty works of God are really epitomized at the end of the sermon here in the response that people give. Did you notice that there's a couple times when Peter is addressing this crowd of people where he specifically says, you killed Jesus? This was only like 50 days ago. Like, this is fresh in everyone's mind. They're in the city where it happened. uh, And he's saying, you were the ones who demanded that he was crucified. You know, there are people in this crowd who mocked Jesus while he died in that same city. And what we need to come to terms with is we would be probably in that crowd too. 
we already talked about how there's all these things that compete with us for our affection, right? All these things that we want more than Jesus and how they exclude Jesus and how they push him out of our lives. Peter knows it. Peter, you know the story of Peter? Jesus is so-called, like, one of his best friends who denies Jesus three times leading up to his death. So we need to see ourselves in this crowd of people. And the crowd of people responding to what Peter says to them, they say, it says it cut them to the heart. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter's answer is amazing. His answer is repent. Which is, what that means in the Bible is turn to Jesus. Do you see how amazing that is? These are people that are undone. They're coming to terms with the depth of their own darkness. They killed Jesus. They killed the Son of God. And they say, we killed Jesus. What should we do? And the answer is, turn to Jesus. He still wants you to come back to him. If you've actively denied Jesus time after time, if you've run from him constantly, if so much of your life is spent avoiding him, if you care more about the good life that Jesus can give you than Jesus himself, what should you do? You should turn to Jesus. He still wants you back. He still wants to hold you close. He still wants you to become who you were made to be, someone who carries the divine fire into the world. And if you'll receive him, then you will. And if that happens to you, it can't stay private. It's news that's too good. You will proclaim Jesus to the world because there's nothing better than being known and loved in that kind of way. There's just nothing better. It's what we were made for. And that's how God is making himself known, even now. When sinners who carry the divine fire go forward and proclaim the goodness of God, the love of God for sinners. So whether for the first time or for the millionth time tonight, I want to invite you to turn to Jesus. I want to invite you to experience the closeness of the one you were made for. And I want to close in praying that God would do that work among us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, you know how much we need you uh, more than we know. And we pray that you would uh, draw near to us, draw us near to you. Uh, We pray that uh, we would be hounded by your love, that we would rest in Christ, that we would uh, draw near to you in relationship and come to know you as our Savior, as the lover of our souls, as the one we were made to be with. And we pray that you'd be glorified in that, that you would draw us together, uh, that your word would go out, uh, that Christ would be proclaimed in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.